Well, it's a new year, Pam Powell. Happy New Year, Chuck Kaplinski. Happy New Year to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, so uh, it's always good uh, before looking ahead to a new year to take stock of the previous one. And that's what we're going to start doing today with this podcast. Uh, it's always fun to, to make a top 10 list. And uh, so we're going to divide this into two because uh, I'm awfully long-winded. So we're going to do a podcast in which we feature our six through ten on the list and then another where we do our top five. And there's going to be a little overlap, but uh, that's bound to happen. All right. Very good. Do you have any um, New Year's superstitions? Superstitions? Yeah. yeah, I didn't know this uh, until I got married, but apparently you're supposed to like eat pork on New Year's Day for good luck. Pork and sauerkraut. Yes, my parents used to do that. My dad was was very, very German, and we had pork and sauerkraut, which I hated pork and I hated sauerkraut. Has that changed? No. And so (laughs) my mother used to put hot dogs in place of the pork, but she'd still stick it in the sauerkraut and cook it that way. Mom, I loved you. God rest your soul. Oh. However, I hated your sauerkraut. Oh. I can't imagine any sauerkraut. Oh. It's, oh, I, it's, I, it's just not, no. It stinks up the whole house. Yeah. 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 Just, just blow your nose on my hot dog instead. Okay, it's about the same. It's <laughs> that, about the same. That would be okra. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I made, I've just, my wife is, is, adheres to this, so I made some ribs last night. Uh, New Year's Day and, nice. and cabbage, so we were kind of sauerkraut. We were in the family, right? But yeah, we didn't do it. But uh, yeah, they. If I've done anything culinary wise in 2020, I really learned how to make ribs. Did you? I really figured that out. Ooh, they I were think very good. This summer we'll have to have a rib bake off. I would love that, I, or a grill off, because I make some pretty kick ass ribs. It sounds like I don't care who wins. It sounds like a win win. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so we we're kind of off to a good superstitious start here. Uh, for New Year's Eve. Uh, but this is the time to look back, especially film-wise, and just like everything else in 2020, uh, this was strange. It truly was a bizarre year, and with all the awards and all their dates shifting, mm-hmm. that's bizarre, too. Um, another bizarre thing is, uh, let's talk a little bit, just touch on Wonder Woman 84. <laughs> and <laughs> didn't mean to choke you on that sip of uh, iced tea. Well, But just the bizarre things that happened with the release of that <clears throat> Well, it's funny. I've been uh, watching Rotten Tomatoes every day. Uh, because my son showed me an article that said that it was certified fresh and it has lost its certified fresh status really? on Rotten Tomatoes. And wow. I said, you watch, this thing's going to be rotten before everything is said and done. And he said, well, what does that mean? I said, well, it means 59%. If it hits 59%, then it's rotten. And it has been steadily dropping. It's at 61 Oh, but. 61% right now. Oh, I see the black spot growing bigger and bigger. Yes. It's going to go splat. It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. <laughs> and rightfully so. I really had some problems with this movie. Yeah, I think you had a lot more problem with it than yeah. I did. Um, but my bar is so low when I go into these things it is. that if it's decent, I am pleasantly surprised. Um, and I guess the one of the reasons why it's doing okay financially, not great, it's never going to recoup the cost, as we've talked no. about before in other no. podcasts. Um, but it pulled in $16.7 million, and $2 million of that came in with private screenings. There were 10,000 theaters mm-hmm. that allowed private screenings for people who don't feel comfortable going to the theater, who are comfortable with their own family or friends, and went to see that. $2 million. That's, I, that's... I, I read that. That was really interesting. Yeah. And, you, uh, and obviously, 
Uh, that's something they're going to continue to do even after the whole COVID thing is over. Uh, I, that's got to be a win-win for uh, the theater companies and, and, and for consumers. I think with the first run film at AMC, it was what, $299? To rent out the theater, three hundred bucks. I didn't think it was that much, was it? I thought I thought it was one ninety nine for okay. a movie that's been out for a while, but I thought it was two ninety nine for a new movie. Okay. But even if you break that down, I thought it was like a hundred bucks. That was for an older film. Was it okay? Th- you could be right. I think it was ninety nine and then one ninety nine for a newer movie. But if okay. you broke it down to twenty people, yeah, you come out winning in the long run. Right. And uh, if that'll get people to go back, obviously, you know, that's something that once the theaters are up and running again. Yeah, they're going to continue that. Right. Well, and they had a lot more new subscribers. I guess they have a total of 30 million subscribers on HBO Max where uh, Wonder Woman 84 uh, was streaming. And it's been like a huge increase in all of the streaming apps. And that's mm-hmm. the way everything is going right now. Yeah. So it's going to be, I think there's going to be an amalgam between going to the theater and being private and making it more of an exclusive type mm-hmm. of an event versus the everyday, oh, let's go to the theater. It's just not going to, I don't think it's going to come back the way that it was. Things are going to no, change. It will change. It will change. But theaters aren't going away, but it will be different. Right. Uh, I know that you were excited by this news, but Warner Brothers announced how they're approaching their DC superhero films now. And the plan is to make six a year. Four will be in theaters, and then two are going to premiere exclusively on HBO Max. Uh, And they will all fit together. So yeah, you're seeing, as you're saying, this whole combination of the streaming thing and the theater-going experience just coming together. Financially, I guess that makes sense. I don't understand the numbers, but... Smarter people than I must be counting those beans in different ways. Right, right. Much like they did in the movie Soul that was streaming on Disney Plus over the weekend. And it was quite a competition between Soul and Wonder Woman Mm -hmm. 84, between the new subscriptions that occurred on both of those digital platforms. So kind of interesting. I guess that's how we're gauging things now. New subscriptions. New subscriptions. And and I guess AT&T can show how many people are streaming. Mm -hmm. 50% of the subscribers for HBO Max watched Wonder Woman 84. Wow. Isn't that cool to know that? I mean, it's also kind of creepy, but it's cool. Statistics are amazing. It makes sense that they can keep track of that. They would need to. Uh, I read an interview with David Spade this morning, actually, and they were talking, he was talking about his last three movies being on Netflix and that they chart views. Right. And we've talked about that before. And he said, well, you know, it's not the same as box office, but when you think about it, when they say that your movie has 60 million views, you know, in a month, and you say, well, 60 million times $10 for a ticket, you know, the equation has shifted, but you can still tell what's, what's a success and what's not. Right, right. And we did find out that a view, at least on Netflix, was, was it two What'd minutes What did you say, or two three or three minutes? minutes? Something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, you found that out. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> That's, I wish I didn't find that out, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's talk about rounding up. I know, right? I thought, if I remember correctly in math, you had to get like to 50 or 51% before you rounded it up, right? I'm glad you paid close attention Three minutes, to math. Yeah. yeah. English was more your forte. You got that right. Well, speaking of English, let's just talk about what we thought were our best. Because we've both written our top 10 lists. They've been published in our respective newspapers and on our website, realtalkwithchuckingpam.com, if you haven't gone there. Um, but let's chat about what our top 10s are. Go ahead. And, and it, it was a tough year for me to throw those into the top 10 because mine danced around between 
11 to 20 and 1 to 10, although there were a couple exceptions that stayed in that top 10. Do, do we want to mention those who are better tied for 11th place or do that later? Let's do that at the end. Okay. You know, I and I think I've said this to you. Um, when I look at my top 10 list, in a normal year, a lot of these movies wouldn't be there. Um, you know, not having the big studio films, uh, and obviously the studio films, they have their problems. I understand that. They're a different animal uh, than the independent films. But still, with the studio films and their usual roster, there's always a few that stand out. Uh, and with those not being there, some crept in that, that wouldn't normally uh, have crept in. Uh, and number 10 on my list was oh, Palm Springs, uh, the, the Hulu comedy with Andy Samberg and J.K. Simmons. And it was a movie I liked a great deal. I don't think it would have cracked the top 10 in, a, in another year. Uh, but it, you know, timing is everything, as we've said this. And this whole notion of being in quarantine and everything basically coming to a halt because of COVID. And then this movie in which these characters are doing a Groundhog Day thing, stuck at a wedding in Palm Springs. It just seemed to hit me right at the right time. That's not to say it's a bad film, it was just all timing. I thought it was incredibly witty, I thought it was very smart. It ends up being uh, poignant in ways I didn't think it would be. Uh, and Sandberg shows something I hadn't seen before. He has a little bit more depth uh, than you would expect from if you're just watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> which uh, I love. Time, which I love. And also, <laughs> uh, over Christmas break, I watched Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. I if, saw you posted that. If you have not watched that movie, watch that movie right now. You will be exhausted at the end. You will laugh so much, you will be exhausted. Uh, but I, I, I like Palm Strings. It was enough, just enough, to break into my top ten this year. Very good. And, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. And what I loved most about it is the price that it sold for at Sundance. Yes. Yes. <laughs> what was it, $24 million or, uh, and It was like $24 million and 69 cents. I don't remember the millions. I just remember the 69 cents. Broke the record by 69 cents. Yes. <laughs> I wonder whose idea that was. I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> well, my number 10 is Sound of Metal. And this is something, this is a movie that I was not looking forward to seeing. Mm -hmm. Just by the title of it. Sound of Metal, and then reading the description, a heavy metal drummer's life is thrown into free fall when he begins to lose his hearing. Wow, sounds really exciting. Because I know when I get in the car with you, you're going straight, <laughs> the Metallica is cranked. Don't yeah, share it, those it, secrets, yeah, Chuck. Mega death. yeah, this, you should see the t-shirt she has, everyone. Because <laughs> I'm rocking out in the car, yeah, yep, uh -huh. that's totally me. Yeah, that there, that there, and a little Beethoven. There are 80s big hair pictures of Pam Powell out there somewhere, let me tell you. Ooh, there actually are. <laughs> This one stars uh, Riz Ahmed as Ruben, and he is a recovering addict, drug addict, and he's in a band, obviously, a heavy metal band. He's a drummer. And all of a sudden, he has a profound to severe hearing loss. He can't hear anything. This is very sudden, and it really takes him takes his breath away, he doesn't know what to do, doesn't understand it, finds out that it is due to the um, toxicity of the drugs that he had taken at one time. And um, it, I'm sure that his heavy metal drumming didn't help matters at all. Um, but he can't recover his hearing and he struggles with who he is now and who is he going to become. Um, this is a really deep and introspective film that shows what happens when we lose something that's so vital and key to how we identify ourselves. And we also learn a little bit about the hearing world versus the deaf community and how the two do not intersect or overlap. 
Um, incredible performance from Riz Ahmed. I've always liked him in everything that I have seen him in. Um, I think he's a really underrated actor because I think he's a very understated actor who can give such depth and emotion and so little movement and expression that you you can walk in his shoes. The editing in this film is extraordinary, um, sound editing and camera work as well because we are experiencing this world of confusion. It's not total silence either. It's its muffled sounds. It's the inability mm -hmm. to locate sounds. Mm -hmm. It is safety. It is, is orientation. And it is communication with other people and not being able to. This is a profoundly moving film that struck me like I never thought it would. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and that's why we do this, to be surprised. Yeah. You know, when you, you know, we've often said that if you have no expectations going in, uh, you, you're opening yourself up to be surprised. And I was definitely surprised by this, too. It probably should be in my top ten, but I watched it after doing um, right. the list. What I loved about this film, and also another movie we're going to talk about later does this, too, it puts us directly in the shoes of the character so that we are, as much as possible, experiencing what he's experienced right. with this hearing loss and things. And it just gives you... They give you just enough to scare the hell out of you. Right. It's like, my God, this is absolutely terrifying what he's going through. Thank goodness, you know, that, that, that I don't have to. And, and that's really, a, the empathy here is, is fantastic. And I want to mention a guy named Paul uh, Racy. Right. Uh, the Chicago Film Critics Association, which we're both a part of. Uh, he won the Best Supporting Actor uh, Award from our group uh, for his performance in this film. Uh, he's uh, the mentor to the character in a sense, uh, tries to show him the way, and he gives a very subtle, moving performance as well. Uh, this is one that I've thought about quite a bit since I've seen it. This one's hard to shake. Yeah, and, and uh, Paul Racy, who actually is a child of deaf parents, mm -hmm. and so he has a, a certain connection with this film and the topic as well, and I think that's why he's, I mean, I think he's a really good actor, but I think this impassioned performance yeah. comes from the heart. Yeah. Um, interestingly, there we're going to both be attending, and I'm putting air quotes around attending, uh, Sundance this year. And there's a movie called Coda coming out, and it's children of deaf adults. Ah, there um, we go. So I've got that one on my list to see. Yeah. So I'm glad you liked that one as much as I did. Yeah, Sound of Metal, it's on Amazon, right. by the way. All right, you got number nine there. Number nine. You know, it was a, it seems those stressful times, uh, horror films do very well in stressful times, whether it's a timing thing, whether it's uh, because uh, things are percolating below the surface or whatever, and it speaks to that. But there, it was a good year for horror films. And one that I really liked was Sputnik. I missed that from one. From Russia. You really, you really should go back and see it. You know, I know you're not a big horror film fan, but one of the reasons I like this is not just because it's a horror film, but because it's just so damn smart. God, what a smart movie. Really? Yes. Uh, it, is, it was compared a lot to Alien, and you can see why. Uh, it's about a Russian cosmonaut who comes back. He comes back alone, but boy, he's not alone. Uh, <laughs> he is carrying a parasite with him, and he does not know it. And uh, he's under observation because whenever you come back, they put you under observation. You're under quarantine for a while. And once he's under quarantine, well, we see this parasite. We see how it is taking a ride back on this guy. And it is absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. But what's interesting about it is, is that the parasite 
starts to take on the emotional uh, characteristics of the host, the cosmonaut, and starts to take on the memories of the host. So it becomes like him. And the cosmonaut becomes less like him because the parasite is taking these things away. Oh, wow. It, it really ends up, and, and there's an orphan daughter, by the way, uh, that I want to mention. And how that all ties in, boy, you don't see it coming. And it ends up being very, very poignant. It reminded me a little bit of Relic. Okay. Another film that came out this year in the sense that this whole poignancy uh, of Relic. Uh, Relic is about dementia uh and even though I, I had problems with the film i think both of you were, were both of us were moved by the fact uh that it was just an inescapable horror that these three women are dealing with sputnik does the same thing really yeah it requires a bit of patience give it 20 minutes if you're not hooked after 20 minutes give up but i promise you if you're looking for a smart horror film is i this, really loved it is this funny too no, no oh no, it's no, not no. oh okay it's russian okay. for christ's sake okay I was <laughs> <laughs> no, they have no sense Still of humor. Yeah, yeah. I can't do a Russian answer. Yeah. Uh, but you can find that on video on demand services. And like I say, it's well worth seeking out. All right. I will take a look at that in my downtime once I get back into the <laughs> Which movie. Means you'll screen. never see it. <laughs> you might. Uh, my number nine is a foreign film, um, but it is this is a universal film. So don't let the word foreign scare you off from seeing this movie called Another Round. Um, it's written and directed by Thomas Zinterberg, who gave us a movie called The Hunt. Both of these movies star Mads Mikkelsen. And in this movie, Mads is a high school teacher. And he is burnt out. His name is Martin. And he's got three other colleagues, three high school buddies, who are also burnt out in their jobs and their lives. They read a philosopher's statement saying that we need to maintain a blood alcohol content level of 0.05% to make our lives better. To test out this hypothesis, they build a study and they start drinking from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Friday and take their job very seriously. Things do improve. But of course, there's a limit to that, as there is a limit to your blood alcohol content. <laughs> so, so that's what I've been doing wrong. That is, the that is. You need thing. to be drunk at school. Buzzed. Okay. <laughs> just a smidge, All just right. you know, just not a little to, bit. to like cut the edge, you know. Yeah, and, and I think the problem with the, these guys is is finding that fine line, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and of course, that fine line is very difficult to maintain, and there is quite a bit of fallout from one side or the other of that yeah. fine line. Um, Mads Mikkelsen has an incredible performance. I don't think I've ever seen the guy in a poor performance, but yeah. I think he paired up with Vinterberg is extraordinary. They know each other well. They are able to read each other well. And Mads gives us a performance that is heartfelt that I think anyone who's over the age of 40 who's ever hit any kind of burnout or relationship issues can completely identify with this character in the issues that he's having. It is sweet, it is thoughtful, it is funny, and it is thought-provoking. Can't go wrong with that. Nope. I hope you can watch that one. I'll watch Spot if, if you watch that one. Okay. Okay, deal? Deal. Cool. Okay. What's your number seven, or eight? Or number eight. eight. Uh, my number eight is Soul. Uh, the great Pixar film uh, from Pete Docter, again, the go-to guy uh, as far as uh, Pixar is concerned. And that's not to discount uh, any of the other filmmakers with Pixar. But when you look back and you see that Docter is responsible for Toy Story, he's responsible for uh, Up, mm -hmm. uh, he's responsible for Inside Out, too, Inside Out. Those are all the ones that have the emotional underpinning 
uh, that I think makes the Pixar films distinctive. Right. You know, and we've said this uh, time and again that, yeah, they come off or they're promoted as kids' films, but the Pixar films are never just for kids. I mean, they're always talking about adult concerns. Oh, God, yeah. This All one in particular. Oh, God, this one in particular. Yeah, talk about, um, I can see Mads doing this right? as far as regrets and wondering how your life turned out uh, the way it turns out. And that's the character. Uh, the case with Joe Gardner, uh, the character voiced by Jamie Foxx in this. He's a middle school uh, music teacher, with, which is its own special kind of hell. <laughs> uh, and that's obviously not where his path he thought was going to lead him to. Uh, he's always wanted to be a musician. Uh, it's in his blood. It's his passion. Uh, but, you know, things happen. Compri- compromises are made. Uh, you know, we know how life works sometimes. Right. But he gets a chance. He auditions uh, at a club in New York. He's going. To, he gets the job to be in a quartet, backing a famous, uh, famous jazz singer. He's excited. He's running home to tell everybody, and he steps into an open manhole cover and kills himself. <laughs> <laughs> but before he does that, he avoids so many other atrocities. It's like yeah. luck is on his side. Yeah, he's going to. Yeah, that's it. That's a really great <laughs> sequence. Yeah, he's dodging and weaving. Banana peels, nails. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, and he ends up in heaven. Or whatever it is, right? Uh, and boy, the stri- the visuals are always striking in this. And I've told you this before. This that moment where he's on the escalator to heaven. Yeah. I can't shake it. I just can't shake the size and scope of that. He decides he's not going. Not ready. He's not ready, and so he escapes to uh, this other place. Uh, the great before. The great before, where souls are before they become human beings. What a cool concept! It's right? a great, uh, yeah, it's a great concept, and uh, he cuts a deal. Uh, that he can go back to Earth if he can take this one soul, number 22, that no one has been able to convince to go to Earth. <laughs> number no, wait, 22. They're calling out these numbers of 1 billion, Yeah, right, right. That's, that, that's million. part of the joke, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> number All 22? the way back at the beginning. She's been there a while. And I think one of the things, I think I maybe laughed hardest all year at a joke in this film because we get flashbacks of 22 talking to great people who are trying to convince her to go down to earth and her her great claim to fame is that she made Mother Teresa cry. (laughs) But when she talks to Abraham Lincoln, oh my God, I had to stop the movie. I was laughing so hard. Tina Fey is 22. Uh, And in trying to get 22 to go back, Joe realizes, you know, that, that life is filled with these things that make life worth living, these little things that we take for granted. And it's an old message. I mean, I get it. I get it. Uh, but we really needed that. I needed that message right now. And everyone, I think, needs that message right now. Uh, the mo- movie couldn't be more timely. And, and there's a sequence towards the end in which we get he sees these random sequences of little things that he remembers and things that he's experienced and and it drives home to him just how wonderful life is uh it's not quite to the tear inducing uh level of that opening sequence of up but it's close yeah it's close it's 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 a wonderful movie it's a wonderful story this is a a very it's a cognitive film i mean it is a film that you really have to think about and little kids, and in fact, I talked with my, my little friend, Clara, who's like five or six years old, and she saw it over Christmas vacation, and she loved it. And I thought, wow, so it, this can hold a little one's attention. 
Um, because to me, this is a very adult movie with mm-hmm. very adult themes and concepts that are that are higher level. But wow, is it? It's just so vibrant and so soulful. It is. You know, it really is. And and embracing those messages. This is, by the way, my number five movie. Even though that's your number eight, this isn't my number five. So it ranked up there too. Um, the message of not just you know appreciating life, but appreciating every moment, even the small ones. And even some of the bad ones. Yeah. Even some of the bad ones. I'm going to cry thinking about it. Yeah, well, you know, and I, I got real quiet at that moment, and my son was looking at me, and at the end he said, you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. You don't understand yet. But yeah. And, and in so many ways, it's, it's, it's funny. It's so well-balanced. It has everything. Um, and the music's and good. Oh, the music is good. Animation is incredible, well, which is why we have these. Yeah, we, we've come to expect that from them. We do, but they get better and better. Sure they do. I, yeah. and, and I had an interesting conversation with the one of the animators of Joe You did, Gardner, that's right, that's right. And he said that in order to make sure that they had all the right movements, the subtle, small movements that make us unique and individual, they would videotape themselves or other people doing things so that they made sure that they had all those mm-hmm. little nuances properly. Mm-hmm. And it shows in this film. It's awesome. Okay. My number eight. <laughs> oh, you can stream uh, Soul on Disney+. Disney+, Plus, Plus, yeah. yeah so add, add to their ever-growing roster of subscribers. Yeah, let's see. What are, what are they at it, right it's, now? It's worth the six bucks. <laughs> $2.3 million. Increase. An increase. Mm-hmm. Wow. Doing well, Disney. Doing well. Uh, my number eight is St. Francis. Um, this one went in and out of my top ten. And I finally decided to go ahead and put it in there because of its boldness. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a brave film. It, it tackles the topic of abortion and how one young woman, um, played by Kelly O'Sullivan, who also wrote the screenplay, um, deals with the fact that she has had an abortion. Um, she's at a crossroads in her life in a lot of different ways. She doesn't know which way she's going to be going with her life. She has a dead-end job working as a waitress. Um, she ends up applying for a nannying position. She really doesn't like kids. And um, this little girl, uh, Frances, doesn't really like her either. And by default, she ends up getting the job. Um, Frances is two moms. They also tackle the subject of, of a lesbian relationship and marriage, same-sex marriage, which comes into play. This is a... Uh, a movie that has a lot of different topics going on within it, but at the heart of it is how Frances, this little girl played by Ramona Edith Williams, um, and Kelly O'Sullivan's character interact and help each other grow to the next stage of their lives. It is a beautiful film. Um, it's bold, it's raw, it's daring, and it tackles a subject that I don't think a lot of filmmakers feel comfortable with, and it still is charming and sweet. When you can combine all that together about a movie about a woman who has an abortion, that's pretty darn creative and talented. So I didn't see this. Okay. But uh, a movie that about abortion that's mm-hmm. on a lot of top ten lists, and a film I think you and I both liked, uh, never, rarely, sometimes, always. Right. How would this compare to that? Um, I think never, sometimes, rarely, always is. Um, it's it, it tackles that one moment in that young girl's life, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't branch beyond that one moment. Okay. Um, it's a much more confined and restricted view of what she goes through. Um, and it's a heartbreaking view. This this woman, um, Kelly O'Sullivan's character of Bridget, uh, lives in Chicago. So 
her, and she is an adult. She's not a teenager. Okay. So she's got a little bit more resources and a little bit more um, knowledge and, and accessibility to the things that she needs to make the right decision for her. Whereas in the character from that movie, really sometimes always never, she did not. Right. Yeah. yeah. So she's dead. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. This this has a lot more entertainment value. St. Francis does than the other movie. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I think you'd really like it. I'll give it a shot. Okay, cool. There's two for you that you need to see. Uh-huh, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, St. Francis you can stream on Amazon Prime, <coughs> I believe. You got number seven. Number seven. Uh, a movie that I had a feeling I was going to like, but boy, I was blown away by it anyway. The Trial of the Chicago mm-hmm. 7 on Netflix. Uh, the Aaron Sorkin uh, film that deals with the 1969-70 trial uh, from the aftermath of the 1968 Democrat Na- National Convention in Chicago and the riots uh, that broke out there. Uh, this is a sprawling, sprawling film uh, that I am surprised they're able to tell in two and a half know, hours, right? quite frankly. I completely agree. And that was one of the great things about this movie is the, the way it moves. It just sucks you in right away when they set it all up, giving you the background of what happened at the convention, and then just introducing these incredibly colorful characters uh, and their opposing views to the government and how the government handles the Vietnam War and and things of that nature. Of course, you have uh, Abby Hoffman, played by Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, a, a scene stealer, no matter what film he's in. Right. <laughs> uh, and he's actually almost a little restrained here at times. Yeah. Uh, and it works to great effect. And then Tom Hayden was on the other side. They, were, they both had the same end goal, but different means of going about getting to that end goal of calling out the government on their Vietnam policy. And he was played by Eddie Redmayne. Uh, both these guys are, are, are great actors in their own right. And seeing the different approaches that they have on screen was one of the great joys, I think, of the movie. Right. Uh, and, of course, Frank Langella, who wow. you can never say anything bad about. He gets the juicy role of uh, Judge Hoffman, <clears throat> a guy who, even though it's not said, I got the impression he was a little addled. <laughs> <laughs> and he isn't putting up with any shit from anybody, and he's going to stick to the letter of the law as he sees it throughout this trial. And he comes off as a complete buffoon. Uh, throughout, but frightening because of the power that he right, has. Right. Uh, Jordan, Go- uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitton, yeah. With the Frank Langella character, the judge, and Judge Hoffman, no relation to Abby Hoffman. And that's a great scene, too, it, where he goes it? about yeah, <laughs> making sure everyone knows the difference. And, and not necessarily that he he's interpreting the law and making his rulings as he sees it. It's how he wants it to be. Yes, yeah. And it's so corrupt. And then you wonder, what else is happening behind the scenes with all the other legal people, from police officers to other judges to district attorneys, et cetera? Well, and that, that's always the danger. You know, Supreme Courts, any sort of judge. You, you know, how do you not put your own personal views t- to the side? Sure. And if you don't, you know, you twist that law, that, and I'm using air quotes, interpretation of the law to fit your beliefs, right. and that's always the danger that we have, uh, now more than ever. Right. Oh, you God, know? yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how this all plays out. <laughs> and that's what's interesting about the film, and I, we, we got a book from Netflix. This is a Netflix film, by the way, about this movie. I read it last night, and Sorkin was, says how struck he was by the fact that what they're dealing with in the movie is so pertinent right now, as far as the rioting, as far as the corruption, as far as the government going out of their way 
to make sure that the truth about anything isn't known. Or someone's constitutional rights are not upheld. Trampled upon. Oh, yes. my gosh. Yes. And, you know, we're, uh, we had talked um, before we started the, the podcast about some of our favorite scenes. This is one of my favorite scenes. And mm. by the way, this is my number two movie of the year. Um, and the character's name is Bobby Seale. He was one of the leaders of the Black, Black Panthers. Panthers yeah. um, and his actual name is Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. And the courtroom scene, he was actually the eighth person on trial in that group, and he really should never have been a part of right. that group. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, the judge I ends can't up, even talk when I think the, about the that. The judge orders that he's gagged, oh. bound and gagged. Uh, and, yeah, everything stops. Oh. Everything crazy. stops. And this is the type of film that I started digging afterwards, and I know mm-hmm. you did too. You know, it, you know that a movie can only tell you so much of the story, and this thing went on for months. Yeah, and months. Almost a year. Yeah, but it strikes your curiosity, and you want to go back and just see. Okay, well, what did they leave out, and did this really happen? And it's just endlessly, endlessly fascinating. And, and from what I understand, and I might be wrong, um, they took a lot of the tr- true transcripts that yes. that happened. And and what I think Sorkin did brilliantly is during the trial. He would also do flashbacks or, or mm-hmm. um, I guess, moments from during the trial of, like, Abby Hoffman performing in Chicago right. and talking about what happened at the trial that right. day. Yeah. Uh, no gag order there. Yeah. Um, so it's it was, it, the, the, like you said, the amount of information that is tackled in this film, I don't know how they sorted through everything to be able to bring in the highlights and the key points to give us such rich characters and every single actor in this film mm-hmm. Huge actors. No one tried to take the spotlight away from anyone else. They were there for a purpose, and they helped one another out. I loved they, it. They didn't need to. Yeah. Because everyone got their moment. Yeah. Everyone true. got so their very, moment very to true. shine. Yeah. Uh, this is one. This one we're going to talk about for years. Yeah. This one has legs. There. This one will be considered a classic, I think, and we'll be going back to this one again and again. Very good. All right, we are on to my number seven, and that is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, this is based on the August Wilson play of the same name, and it stars Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. Um, Viola Davis plays Ma Rainey, and she is the mother of the blues. Um, she's an angry woman. This is an angry movie, and rightfully so. Um, takes place back in 1927, again in Chicago. Wow, we had a lot of shit going on in Chicago, yeah. you know? Um, and uh, she and her band have a, a chance to record an album. Um, Ma is a little bit older, and she's been around the, the track before. She understands how life works, and she understands how life works for a black woman and a black person. Chadwick Boseman, on the other hand, plays Levy, and he is a, an extraordinary horn player, and he wants to be the, the superstar. He wants to be the focus of all the attention. Obviously, the two of them are going to butt heads, but where the real drama occurs is really between the four men, the four men in the band, and as they and I get choked up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> ah. yeah. It's it's you know the, the thing that was driven home to me in this film. You hear the phrase "black on black crime," and you wonder, as I, as a, as a white man, what that's all about. This movie did a great job of explaining that to me as to how that happens, as to how the rage that you can express towards the person or the institutions you want to express them towards, how it becomes internalized and then you just strike out at whatever's around you. Right. 
that really, I, I gasped at a moment in this film. The tragedy of this is, is Shakespearean and so and cuts so deeply. Uh, and I've, again, I hate, I hate continuing to say this. I mean, the film's written in 1982, but it's still as powerful today because we still haven't made any steps forward and we still uh, have problems with this. And it's, the tragedy is incalculable. Uh, but that's what great art does. It reminds us, it reminds us of the injustices. It reminds us that we still have to work towards solving this problem. And, and this movie really shook me. It's my number two uh, 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 for the year. It really, really shook me up for a lot of reasons. Well, it, it, all of August Wilson's plays, and if you haven't read them, take the time to. Um, also take a look at Giving Voice, which is on Netflix, and it's all about a competition among students to... Uh, create an August Wilson uh, monologue or perform it. Or make sure you have your Netflix subscription because Denzel Washington, one of his missions is to have all of his uh, Wilson's uh, plays filmed. Oh, really? Yeah, all 10 of them. And they're eventually going to be on Netflix. He already did Fences. Right, right, which was my number one a couple years ago. Right, and now this... Uh, so a great, uh, a great move towards preservation as far as this work is concerned. Yeah, and, and having the, the cinematography of this movie oh. is incredible. The mm. editing is incredible. Oh. And then the delivery of the dialogue. And there are soliloquy boom, boom, after boom. Oh, it's, it's, well, you had compared it to Mammoth, yeah. which I can definitely see that pacing and style mm-hmm. there as well. It is an extraordinary performance. Bozeman, so sad. And I'm going to yeah, cry yeah. again. Oh, my God. Well, and, and, and props <laughs> to the director, George Wolfe. Right. You know, I, I'm always amazed when you can take a story that takes place in one location and I'm not bored with it. Uh, you never feel claustrophobic even though we're stuck oh. in this recording studio. The way he moves the camera t- coupled with the sharp editing. There's an energy here in the dialogue. Oh, I'll say. You're never, ever, ever bored. Right. You're just on the... You know, 20 minutes in, you end up leaning forward. You're on the edge of your seat. Not so much because of tension, but because you don't want to miss anything. Right. And that's really a testament to all their work. In, in watching it a second time, I got more out of it the second oh, time. Oh, yeah. I picked up on so much more, and I'm sure, you know, subsequent viewings, I'm going to do the exact same thing. Yeah. Great film. Yeah. Great film. Yeah. Good. I'm glad it's on your number two. That's awesome. What do you got for number six? What do I have for number six? I have to refer to my, <laughs> refer to my extensive list here. Uh, with all of my, uh, my my footnotes and all that crap. What you say? Oh, yeah, that's the one. Oh, yeah, a film that you loved. What? Uh, King of Staten Island. <laughs> I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. Actually, you know, I was watching um, Saturday Night Live. I was getting caught up on all the episodes that I've missed over the last couple of months. And uh, what's Pete Davidson. Pete Davidson was on there. And I was telling my daughter, I said, Kelsey, you know, I, I really kind of like him now after watching that movie. Exactly. I have so much more... Uh, sympathy, empathy, understanding for this young man and, and what he went through. I was not a fan. Yeah. I thought he was a one-note guy, you know, like, oh, get over it and everything. Right. But King of Staten Island, Judd Apatow helped him write it and he directed it. It's Judd Apatow's best film, I think, because it has heart. Yeah. And you do understand what the, what the kid went, went through. Uh, semi-autobiographical film about uh, Davidson, a uh, kid growing up. Uh, on Staten Island, has no direction. His father, a firefighter, was killed in the 9-11 attacks. Uh, he, he is rudderless. His mom, played by Marissa Tomei, is doing her best, but she's a little lost as well. Uh, and, and, and this kid, he's just a screw-up. 
He's a screw up. Yep, he just hangs around. Basement. Yeah, get high with his friends. It's all he does. Practices. He wants to be a tattoo artist. I love this joke. He wants to open a restaurant where you can go in and get a dinner and also get a tattoo. And he practices his tattooing on his poor friend. A poor friend. He's just like, you look at his back and it's just this palette of just screwed up tattoos. Absolutely hilarious. And then the kid finally starts to figure it out. The mom starts to date a, a, a firefighter who, uh, and I won't tell you how they meet because that's all screwed right, up as well. Right. And, and Davidson starts to get uh, involved with this whole group of firefighters at this guy's station. Steve Buscemi is in it, uh, a firefighter himself in real life. Uh, so, so, so we've got that uh, going as well. And the kid starts to understand what's important. He starts to understand why his father did what he did. And he starts to really find out about his dad uh, and who he really was, because he has this idealized version of him in his mind. Uh, and these guys knew him, and he tell, they tell him the good things, the bad things about him, and he starts to grow up. I mean, I, it sounds real simple, and I know you said it was too long. Mm -hmm. It's a long film, yeah. but I was never bored with it because I cared about everyone. Uh, Bill Burr had gives a great performance, and I never thought he was a great right. actor. Yeah. But boy, he nails it as as Tomei's new boyfriend, and 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 Davidson's uh, you know mentor, uh, and he also forms a sweet uh, relationship with Burr's kids, yeah. walking them to school every day. <laughs> I mean, there's just these little moments throughout that that I thought were not only funny but really, really sweet. And when a performer puts themselves out on the line like that, and we're going to talk about another person who did that as well this year, uh, I admire that. And uh, it changed my whole perception of Davidson after watching the film. Yeah, it did me as well. It didn't make my top ten. There were just too many other movies that I thought were a little bit better than that one. But I did enjoy most of it. And I really do have a new appreciation for him. Yeah, so. definitely. I, I won't judge you poorly based on that. There are other ones you will, but not <laughs> oh, this yeah, one. Oh, not yeah. this one. We're okay, we'll go. Like yeah. Let's go to my number six is The Life Ahead, um, starring Sophia Loren and this little boy named Ibrahima oh. Gaye, who has never acted in his <laughs> life. Um, this is directed by uh, Loren's son named Eduardo Ponti. Um, what a wonderful culmination of these two people coming together to bring Sophia Loren out of her, I guess, retirement or hiatus from acting. She hadn't been acting for quite some time. Mm -hmm. um, but have a, a mother-son reunion and this sort of a film that is incredibly poignant and relevant to today about um, love, the need for love and support, understanding, non-judgmental, and immigration and how mm -hmm. we view others and acceptance. Um, Sophia Loren plays Madame Rosa, and this is based on a book, I believe. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and she used to be a streetwalker, and she is now a caregiver for all the streetwalkers' kids. Mm -hmm. um, so she's running a little daycare, and she has a run-in with Momo, the little boy that I, I um, just talked about, Ibrahim Aguaye. And he's a little shit. He is a juvenile delinquent, and mm -hmm. he is out of control. And... Somehow, Sophia Loren's character, Madame Rosa, ends up taking care of this boy and taking this boy in. Um, they don't really like each other. Um, there's not a whole lot of good stuff to be uh, seen between the two of them, but of course, things change and the need 
that each other has in the other is just so beautiful. And there's a this is another one of my movies that I had a favorite scene yes. from. Yes. Um, and it's with, there are two with, in this film. Uh, the oh yeah the end the oh, end. Oh Jesus! Yeah. Don't, give, don't get me started about the ending. Um, yeah. But it's with the um, the rug, shopkeeper. The shopkeeper. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And his interaction is they're repairing this rug mm -hmm. and learning about their uh, the Muslim their heritage, heritage, the Muslim yeah. religion. Yeah. And the profoundness of that rug and the symbol within, and how and the boy, represents the boy him. fixing it. And, oh, yeah, oh. yeah. And this, this is and oh. the, the whole recurring <laughs> motif of the line. Yeah, throughout. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it, it, you know, and I was like, God, I don't want to watch a foreign movie. Jesus, God, help me. <laughs> 15 oh, yeah. minutes in, I'm like, Jesus, this is fantastic. I know, I know. I remember you texted me because Netflix did that live streaming thing. So, right. yeah. Oh. Right. Yeah, this, you know, again, I've said it before, we do this because we like to be surprised. And this one stunned me. Yeah. And I, I'm looking at my list right now. I have two foreign films on my top 10 list, which is kind of crazy. You know, and, of course, Loren, they're talking about her getting a nomination for an Oscar, and it would be so... Uh, so deserved. I mean, she's really moving, and I mean, her character, you know, touches of dementia come in, yeah. uh, which again proves incredibly tragic as well. And and we delve into the character's past, and the uh, movie runs, I think, only 97 minutes. Okay. But boy, they pack a lot in there. And I love the fact that she and the kid, they never overplay a moment. No, they don't. It's and, real and, quiet. And the screenplay is never overwritten either. No. You know, nothing hits you over the head like, like Madame Rose's background and, and what happened to her. Right, right. We just get small touches of that, and that's powerful. And right. That's all we need. We don't need more than that mm -hmm. to understand. Just let it play out. A very powerful film. Yeah. I like this one a lot. So that, what, is 6 through 10 on our list. And, Six uh, or ten with a little sprinkling of one through five. That's right, that's right. Yeah, we were mixing them up a little bit. Uh, but yeah, one through five, though, has their surprises as well, and we're going to be taking a look at those in our next podcast, as well as some runner-ups, uh, those that we call tied for 11th place, ones that were knocking on the door of our lists. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and tune in next week for another episode for our one through five. Exciting stuff, Jeff. I can't wait.